Okay, we want to return to uh, our time of discipleship here when it comes to the home. And we ended last week uh, in Lesson 6 talking about submission and obedience to authority. This was one of the things as parent, as a teacher, we're continuing on with that reality. One of the roles of us as disciplers is teaching. We ended last week on submission to authority, and I said this was one of the biggest areas, I think, in our day and age, if not in really since the creation of the world, where we have an issue with authority. Adam and Eve buck the authority of God. Satan himself demeaned the authority of God by trying to take his own authority and elevate himself to the place of God. And God has put in place in our world authority figures, authority structures for us to come under. And submission to that sometimes rubs against us. Why? Because submission is the recognition that we are under authority. Submission is a willing attitude. An attitude of the heart that says, I'm under an authority given and placed by God. And therefore, obedience is an obligation of mine to respond rightly to that authority. And that's obviously oftentimes what we do not see in our society. And we do not see that in society oftentimes because we do not see that in the home Without respect for authority, all kinds of problems ensue. And so the best way to help our disciples in this issue of submission and obedience to authority is for us to be submissive and obedient to the authority according to the Word of God, how God has ordained authority. There are authority figures who step outside of that and go outside the reality of their responsibilities and their actual authority and try to overrule. We're not saying that God is requiring us to submit to that reality, but we are saying that God calls us to submit to authority. But in addition to that, we talked about the fear of God as well. In addition to those two things, in Lesson 7, we want to deal with this whole idea of how to deal with sin. How to deal with sin. If you have your Bibles, turn in them to Proverbs 8. We'll be uh, kind of jumping around the Scriptures this morning, so you want to keep your Bible on hand. Proverbs 8, verse 13, says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. We know from Proverbs 1 and Proverbs 9 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if we're going to exercise wisdom, if we're going to exercise skillful living, which is what wisdom means, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. We're going to have to hate evil. Well, if we're dealing with sin, sin is evil. And so if we're going to deal with sin... Dealing with personal sin 
is going to be a very serious thing. If you're following in your notes, that's what the blank there is, personal, dealing with personal sin. Personal sin. One of my favorite passages in all of the Bible is Proverbs 3. Specifically, verses 5 through 7. Verse 7 says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Now, for us to deal with personal sin, we have to exercise the essence of that passage. To exercise the essence of that passage. Of course, we know, verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. So there's parallel reality to that. In order to deal with personal sin, we've got to stop trusting ourselves, our own heart. I've said this before. I'll say it again. It, I cringe when I hear someone say, just follow your heart. That is one of the most frightening statements our world has ever come up with. Follow your heart. Because the Bible clearly tells us in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. If I'm going to turn from evil, I can't follow my heart. I can't just feel like it's the right thing. Leaning on my own understanding. No, I have to not be wise in my own eyes. I have to fear the Lord if I'm going to turn away from evil. And so I have to be willing to examine myself rightfully according to the Word of God, allowing the Word of God to examine me and also receive reproof or instruction or correction or challenges, if you will, from other Christians. Uh, Turn back to Psalm 139 just for a moment. Psalm 139. Notice what verse 23 and 24 says. Search me, O God, and know my heart. There you go, right? You want to have this examination of yourself? You want to have a right examination of yourself so that you're not leaning on your own understanding? Then you must let God examine your heart. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way. Your text may use a different word there for hurtful. It it just simply means way of pain or or. Any ways in my life where my life is going to go astray from what you say? Examine that. Expose that. Show that to me through your word. Show me. Call me up short in all those areas in which I'm going down this life path in my thoughts and in my ways that might be hurtful to my life. Obviously, the ways that God wants us to walk are not going to be hurtful to us. Now someone says, well, wait a minute. I'm a, I'm a Christian and I feel pain all the time from, from struggles and trials. Sure. But 
God does what is best for us. We're not talking about hurtful in the sense of physical pain and emotional pain and those things that we feel in humanity. Certainly that's, that can happen, right? Even under the discipline of the Lord, like Hebrews 12 says, right? We all find that to be sometimes hard to deal with. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is things that would cause my life to go stray from the way of God. That's the hurtful way. That's the way of pain in my life, real pain, because it can lead to an eternity of pain if I don't know Christ. And so I want God to, if I'm going to deal with personal sin in my life, I want him, as this verse says at the end of verse 24, lead me in the everlasting way. If I'm going to deal with sin, I want God to examine me, examine my heart, examine my ways, and therefore then I need to submit and obey the everlasting way, what he would want. Come back again to Proverbs 6. I'll just go through a few of these verses that we have listed. Proverbs 6 and verse 23. For the commandment, that is what God says, is a lamp. And the teaching is light. Okay? God's word is the that which illumines, which shows me what is right. It leads me in the right direction. And so to go against that would simply be sinful rebellion. Someone tell me what Matthew, Jesus in Matthew in his Sermon on the Mount said about our sin. What, did he, what, what were the, our sin called there in Matthew chapter 7, specifically verse 3? He said, take the what out of your eye? The log out of your own eye before you ever think about the speck in your neighbor's eye, right? They're logs. They're these massive things in, in our way. So when we're dealing with sin, when we have to be willing to examine ourselves, we have to be willing to receive reproof from others. But it's more than just sometimes saying, yeah, I sinned, right? Or I was wrong or I went the wrong way, right? If we're going to take responsibility for our sin, we, we have to take responsibility without blame shifting. We live in a syndrome fanatic society. Everything is a syndrome. Everything is a deficiency. Everything is a disorder. Everything is a problem. Everything is not my fault. It's not me. It's everything else around me. That's what we do with life. We blame shift life. It's not my fault. We blame shift, we make excuses. Well, I did this because you did so and so to me. I responded this way because... How many have ever said in, a, in an argument and somebody's trying to deal with it, well, you made me mad. You ever say that? Let's raise our hands. Come on. There's not 100% of us in here saying that. Come on. Everybody has said, you made me mad. Now think about that statement. Really? Somebody else has that kind of control over your life? 
that they made you mad, they're omniscient and omnipotent over your life, that they can make you mad. Is that true? No, what happened? Somebody sinned, and you what? You chose to get mad. You got mad. They didn't meet your expectations, or they didn't do what you wanted, or they lashed out in some way, and you responded sinfully. But when I say, you made me mad, what's that doing? Blame shifting. It's not my fault. Not my, listen, my anger issue is not my problem. It's your problem. Well, that takes us all the way back to the garden, doesn't it? Wait a minute, God. This stuff that's happening right now ain't my problem. You did it. It's this woman you gave me. Blame shifting's inherent in the heart. It's there. We don't want to take responsibility for our sin. And yet, if we're going to teach our children, if we're going to teach people who are under us just being discipled, we have to learn how to deal with sin and deal with it in a personal way. Deal with it a person, not minimize it, not rationalize it away. So when we sin, what does God require? Repentance. So somebody tell me what that means. What does repentance mean? A change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. At least somebody reading their notes. <laughs> and everybody's like, don't call on me. I don't know the answer. It's right there. <laughs> right? It's, a ch- it's not simply a change of behavior. That's called reformation. That's called reforming yourself on the outside. That's called changing the paint color on the barn because it's falling apart. That's not fixing the problem. It's a change of mind. In other words, we have to think differently about the sin issue. This is why not blame shifting is so important. Because biblical repentance is a change of mind that ultimately leads to a change of behavior. Right? So what's the best way to teach our children to do that? Class? never beat yourself up, you never blame yourself, it's always somebody else. So if you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to blame your neighbor for something huh? you did. That's a good illustration. That's ah, a good illustration. That's a, that's a great point. In fact, I've never even looked at that that way, but that's a great way to see that. You're going to absorb your issue. You're going, to be, you're going to know your issue. That's where you're going to start. You're going to start with a right examination of your own heart on the issue. This is, this is how we teach people. And, and it's the Holy Spirit's role to bring that conviction upon us. Right? As Christians, we can't, we can't quench the Holy Spirit. Right? We're commanded not to do that in Ephesians chapter 5. 
We're not to silence the Holy Spirit. To silence the Holy Spirit, we talked about this, in fact, when we were studying through 1 Corinthians, is to, you, you don't want to silence your conscience. The Holy Spirit, that's, that's the God-given bell ringer in, your, in, your, in you. And the Holy Spirit uses His Word in you and, the, and the, the renovation taken by the Word of God, the commandment being a light to your feet. He takes that and, and brings that to mind. You don't want to push that aside. You don't want to suppress that. To do that, you silence your conscience. You silence your conscience when you sin. It doesn't ring. And then you have no remorse. You have no sadness. You have no issues if you're doing that and you have no problems, you may not be saved. So we have to have this right thinking about our sin and sorrow over it. A sorrow. David said in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. Well, was that physically an accurate statement by way of the sin? No. Right? He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against her husband. He sinned against numerous people by way of their own, his abuse of his own leadership and all these other kinds of areas. He sins against his own family and how he didn't oppose them because of his own sin and all kinds of other issues. And yet he says, against you and you only. He didn't mean, well, I only see my sin against God and, and nobody else matters. He didn't mean that. But he saw his sin right before God, that it was an issue between his heart and God. And the reason that he sinned is because he thought so little of God at that time and, ex- ex- and, and uh, exalted himself to the place where he was thinking he's God. I can just do what I want. I can take life if I want. I can take this person if I want. I can do whatever I want. And so he saw his sin for what it was. He wasn't simply remorseful because he got caught. That's sometimes what we see today, and that's why that's why the term uh, when we sometimes ask our kids to go and make something right with somebody, or we talk to one another, we say, "I'm sorry." That's why that term doesn't go deep enough. "I'm sorry" is almost a remorse term. It's almost, yeah, okay, I got caught, so I'll say I'm sorry. But there's no cost to that. There's no sense in which I truly understand the heart issues. Uh, The issue more should be the idea of forgiveness, right? Uh, Will you forgive me? Why? Because I wronged you. You see, that's different than saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I punched you in the face. No, no, you're not. Will you forgive me for thinking so little of you that I thought I could treat you in that way? Now that's different. That's different than I'm sorry. It's a subtlety of language, and yet it says a whole lot about how we think about our sin, how we think about what we do, how we think about how we act. We're not talking about just semantics here in language. We're talking about the heart speaking. Out of the heart flows the wellsprings of life. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. What we say is who we are. It's what we believe. 
And so how to receive, we need to teach our children not only how to receive forgiveness through confession and acknowledgement of sin, but we need to exercise that so that they see it. Proverbs 28, verse 13 Notice how what it says, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. I'll tell you what, you ought to turn to this verse anytime your children says to you, yeah, but it won't happen to me. You know, you're talking to your older kids, they're telling you what they're going to do in life, and you're going through all the baggage that and the struggle that maybe you've had from from a sinful choice that you made in your life that God has taught you over time you're trying to express that to them they say yeah but see dad you you did that and you turned out okay it's not going to happen to me you got to turn to this verse and say listen he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper it's not dad's words it's not mom's words that's God's words but he who confesses and forsakes will find compassion. By the way, what does forsake mean? Sorry? Turn away from? Turn away from? Well, you can turn away and still carry it. Abandon? Abandon. Totally forsake it. Totally leave it behind. Right? Just leave it behind. That's, that's how God wants us to deal with sin. Abandon it. Leave it behind. That's why he uses such graphic language when he talks about sin in the, in the Scriptures. He talks about us in Romans mortifying the deeds of the flesh. Kill it. Get rid of it. Totally abandon it. Don't leave any vestige of it alive. It needs to go. I remember when my kids were younger, I used to ask them, so what does God require? When they're fighting with each other, when they're having interpersonal issues with friends or whatever, what does God require of, of those who believe in Him? What does God require of you in this situation? Have them tell you what they believe God requires. It opens up the door for you to Help them understand what reconciliation really looks like. How reconciliation is supposed to happen. Jesus, back in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, was pretty, uh, pretty pointed when he said how to deal with relationships. Verse 23 and 24 of Matthew 5, he said, If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, so you're doing the most solemn reality of your life, and you remember your brother has something against you, he, he's saying, and you remember there's this issue unreconciled. You haven't done all you could do to be at right with all men. In this one area, you know this. Your conscience is, is now before you. And leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother. and Then come and present your offering. That's why we always uh, 
try at least here to exhort us during our communion time, even though that communion time is our is our once a month time to 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 have that formal reality impressed upon us again, this reality we'd be doing all the time. It's this reality of always having a short list of of offenses. We ought to be reconciled with one another. Your children need to see that not only in your own life, but also they need to exercise that. You need to teach that. You also need to teach about the requirement of making restitution. Restitution is necessary when it comes to repentance. When we see our sin rightly, there are times when restitution is necessary. Luke chapter 19, the whole issue with Zacchaeus, tax, tax gatherer who had was taking the money from the people for the Roman government. He wanted to see Jesus. He, Jesus goes to his house and Zacchaeus says, I'm going to pay back not only what I've, if I've defrauded anyone, but I'll give four times back what I've defrauded. Whatever is necessary and appropriate for the thing. When our, when our kids were young and we'd go over to someone's house, oftentimes they'd be playing with some item at that people's house we were at. And from time to time, that item got broke. And our children happened to be the ones who broke it. And inevitably, like we all do, we all say, oh, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Right? We required that our children replace that item. Even if it was an old tattered board game that they'd had around for 15 years. I don't know how many games of sorry I've purchased. Why? Because they broke it. They broke it. There was a responsibility, a restitution responsibility. You don't just assume that because it's old, it's okay. Or because it wasn't yours and they said it's okay. Restore it. Do what you need to, to restore it appropriately. They can learn from failure. They can learn from that. Encourage them for the next time. That's what it does. So we have to teach those truths, but we have to model those truths and then pray continuously that God will bring them to repentance, to true repentance of the heart, because God is still in control of the results, right? We don't have the privilege to control the results. And thank goodness we don't. I was thinking about this the other day. My wife and I were talking. We were driving home yesterday from my daughter's. And I was saying, you know, only God is righteous. There's a reason that God has told us, follow Him. Because He is righteous. And if we were left to ourselves, we'd do nothing righteous. We would do nothing righteous. We fight against the flesh and we still fail, don't we? Even as Christians. If it was not for God in us, we'd do nothing righteous. We would do nothing right. There would be no justice whatever, ever. We cannot expect in our human lives to expect to have justice from fallen humanity. There is no justice with fallen humanity. Only with God. Why God says, follow me. Do what I do. Because that's the only place there is righteousness. Well, we need to model that for our kids. 
We need to model that for our kids. Remember the balance, right? Don't just be a put off. Don't say don't, 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 but be a put on, right? Do the right thing. Do the right thing. All right, so we need to deal with our own sin personally, and we need to deal with others' sin properly. Letter I in my notes, dealing with other sins properly. The Bible gives us various responses to others' sinfulness. Right? There are times in which we flee from sinful behavior, sinful activity, so that we're not caught up in the trouble, so that we're not part of it. We flee. Proverbs 4. Verse 14, do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not proceed in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Turn away from it and pass on. I don't know how many ways those two verses can tell us don't go that direction. Right? Don't enter it. Don't proceed there. Avoid it. Pass by it. Turn from it. Pass on. Six different ways in those two verses. Get away from evil. Flee it. Don't get caught up in the sin of others. This is part of our responsibility with our, with our kids. This is why I used to say to my kids, if you're not going to choose your friends wisely, I'm going to choose them for you. Because of this very issue. If you're not going to stay away from evil then I'm going to ensure that you stay away from evil. Sometimes those were kids in the church. Sometimes they were kids from other families in the church. Well, we're not going to let you hang out with that family right now. Why not? Well, because there are things we don't want you to have have influence in your life. Are you saying they're wicked people, Dad? No, not saying that. I'm saying you're not mature enough to handle it. You're not mature enough to to be able to stand against it on your own. And so I'm going to keep you from it. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad Bad company corrupts good morals. We've talked about this before older kids saying, well, I'm going to be a Christian influence in that group. (laughs) No, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're going to to be taken aside by that group. You're naive. You're not mature enough to handle that yet. So we have to teach them the importance of fleeing. Fleeing from sin. So think about your own life. What areas in your own life do your kids now, if they're older, even younger, you're teaching them patterns of not fleeing from evil? What about when those illicit commercials come on the television? Do you turn them off? Or do you just let it play? What about in the videos that you watch and there's sinful 
activity going on. Immoral things, language, and otherwise. Do you just let it go? Well, you're not teaching them to flee from sin if you are. In fact, you're saying it's okay. It's okay to dabble with it. It's not really going to hurt you. Which is exactly what Satan said to Eve. Don't worry about that. It's really not what God means. When God says flee from evil, and he says don't be deceived, bad company corrupts, eh, it's really not. It's really not true. He doesn't mean that. So we may have a valid right when someone sins against us, we may have a valid right to retaliate. But we need to remember a principle, and that principle is the importance of being a peacemaker. Importance of being a peacemaker. Romans 12, verse 18, speaks to that issue. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. In order to be a peacemaker, it's going to cost. It's going to cost you something. Cost you time, cost you energy, cost you materials potentially, cost you even monetarily, certainly going to cost you emotions. Because it's not easy to be a peacemaker. Peacemaker absorbs absorbs the, the blows sometimes, absorbs the pain, the hurt, difficulty, and yet as much as is required of you, work to be at peace with all men. I had a phone call recently from someone <clears throat> who I've known for years who said, hey, listen, I want to try to work through something. I've had issues for 10 years with you. We, we're, we've been at loggerheads for 10 years. And I said, well, I'm not sure what you're talking about. I haven't been loggerheads with you. I don't have any issue against you. You know, what, what, what seems to be the problem that, that's going on? You know, I, I don't have any issue with you. You know, I, I, I certainly want to be reconciled. This person would have none of it. They would not reconcile. They disagreed with my assessment and just walked away. And that's sad to me. Sad to me but I wanted to do everything I could at least to be a peacemaker, to be someone reconciled to them. That means we have to sometimes give up our right or personal preference, lay down our own life as a sacrifice to others. We don't want to compromise the truth. We're not saying that. We're not saying you compromise the truth. We're saying sometimes you just have to absorb it. Sometimes you just absorb them. We have to teach our children how to be peacemakers. If you want to read a good book on the whole issue, Ken Sandy, Peacemaker Ministries, is really a ministry built for reconciling issues in churches. But I think the principles uh, go a long way to other areas. He has material for children as well. You can take a look at that. Sandy is S-A-N-D-E, if you want to look up his name, Ken Sandy. So we have to teach our 
children to confront sin in a loving way, but in a firm way, just as Galatians 6, 1 tells us, right? When your brother is caught in trespass, you who are spiritual go to such a one, and yet know as you're going that you could be in that same place. I'm paraphrasing that verse, but that's essence what it's saying. You go lovingly, because it's the right thing, gently, but patiently. And again, all these things ought to be modeled in your own life. They ought to be modeled through how you deal with life and the issues of life between you and your spouse or between you and others. Ephesians chapter 4 gives us another principle. And that is the importance of forgiving others. Talked about it a little bit. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. How? Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. That's, that's the essence. That's the basis for us forgiving anyone. Because we understand that God has forgiven us much. How in the world could we not be forgiving to others? In fact, Jesus in his, and the disciples said, teach us to pray. And Jesus was saying, pray this way. And what we call the, you know, the, the disciples' prayer, he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive others. Same thing, same principle. The way you've forgiven us, let that apply to us in the same way we forgive others. Wow, that's a serious prayer. Lord, don't forgive me if I'm not forgiving other people. That's in essence what he's saying. You ever pray that way? No, we don't pray that way. No way. We say, Lord, forgive me. In spite of the fact that I don't want to forgive anybody. That's what we do. That's not what Ephesians says. Because forgiveness means that we don't use the offense against them. That's what forgiveness means. When you husbands forgive your wives, when you wives forgive your husbands, or when we forgive somebody else who's offended us, guess what? We've just said, I'll never use that against you ever. How's that going? That's going well, huh? Because man, I'll tell you what, we are... We don't know history, but we know history when we need it. You did this back in 1947. I wasn't even alive then. That's all right. You were thinking it in your mother's womb. (laughs) Forgiveness says we relinquish the right to retaliate. I'm just relinquishing that right. I may have the right. May have been genuine. You sinned against me, but I forgive you. So what's that look like? What's that look like in practice? That means we don't gossip about it. We don't tell our friends about it. Gossip. Either way, how well, how much they hurt you or how well you did in forgiving them. 
We don't bring it up in any kind of way to harm them, tear them down, destroy them. Philippians 4 says, don't dwell on it, right? Philippians 4, 8, set your mind on these things. None of those things say, dwell on the evil that was done to you. It doesn't say that in any part of that verse. Whatever's true, whatever's right, whatever's just, whatever's holy, whatever's pure, whatever is of good report, dwell on these things. That's forgiveness. That's the relinquishing of the right to retaliate. Just don't bring it up. Where's that come from? Huh? Oh. Sounded like it was coming through the microphone. I'm like, do we have a microphone down in the nursery or something? Aw. You know what she's saying right there? It's these parents you gave me. That's right. Exactly. So forgiveness involves choosing, right? Us willfully choosing. We're not going to remember that. We're just not going to remember it. That's how God forgives us. It's not that God does, is no longer omniscient about all the things we've ever done. He chooses to not bring it up anymore. He chooses. So it's an act toward another person based upon what God has done for us rather than what they've done. To us. That's forgiveness. And how often does the scriptures tell us we need to forgive? How much? Continually? Seven times seven, four hundred and ninety times only? Unlimited, right? That's that's what he meant, right? For however many times they come back, you forgive. Based upon the reality, that's what God does for us. By the way, in your notes, when it says unlimited amounts in Matthew 21, 35, that's the wrong text there. If, you, if your notes aren't changed, it needs to be Matthew 18, 21 to 22. So forgiveness is going to be essential if we're going to maintain healthy relationships, both inside and outside of the family cannot be a place where we're not forgiving. So we teach them to fear God. We teach them to submit and obey. We teach them how to deal with sin. But also we are to teach them how to have biblical communication. Biblical communication. Some years ago here in the church, we did a whole series on communication in Sunday school. Man, it was probably back in 2008 or nine, maybe. Way back. Maybe we need to do that again. Ephesians 4.29, kind of the overarching verse that I turn to often when I'm dealing with this issue. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such as is good for edification according to the need 
that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, there's several aspects of that verse that we have to realize, right? One is what we say can't be unwholesome. That word is a very interesting word in the original language. It kind of means just rotten, things that are decaying, things that stink. I always use the illustration of that three-week-old project in the back of your refrigerator that you forgot about that was leftovers, and you went, what's this? Whoa, my goodness. That kind of smell that comes out of that, that's what he's talking about. Don't let any words with that kind of sense come out of your mouth, ever. Not in certain moments, but ever. That's the intent. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Well, what kind of word can I then? Only such one as is good for edification. That's the first qualification. So it has to be language that builds up. This is what I'm teaching my disciples. This is what we have to teach our disciples. You only speak, you should be speaking only what will build, not what will tear down. That's what unwholesome words do. They tear down. They blame shift. They excuse. They do all these kinds of things. But we are to build benefit. We're to speak words that are benefit for others. And notice the second thing, according to the need. So that means that I could speak words that might be edifying, but they're not needful. That means I have to now think about even that edification level. I can't let any unwholesome things, but I just can't let anything come out that I that might even be helpful because it might not be needed. I have to think about, I have to evaluate the time, the need. Is this a proper need? Does this need to be said? Maybe I've said enough. Maybe the words that I've spoken are enough. I I don't need to give any more because it's according to the need, the need of the situation, the need of the moment, the need of the time. And also notice the third phrase, that it may give grace. Notice to those who hear. That doesn't simply mean the person who you're talking to. That means to those who hear. They might be in another room. They might be somewhere else that are in earshot of what you're saying. So not only are we to think about what we what comes out of our mouth, but we're to think about even in what is coming out of our mouth, even though it's edifying, is it needful? And is it going to give grace to anybody within earshot of me? Is that how we think about our communication? I'll tell you, when every time I read this verse, I just want to I just feel like sitting down, shutting up, and saying nothing. Because most often our words are what destroy people. I mean, we are quick. How many of you get an email or get a text and immediately you write back? I mean, some of your thumbs are so fast I kind of get. And you hit that send button and go, oh, I wish I wouldn't have sent that. Memorize this verse. You'd probably be not so quick to send that little quick email back, quick text back, quick. I don't think we write letters anymore. I was going to say quick letter back. 
Biblical communication fits within the framework of Ephesians 4.29. Proverbs 15.2 says, The tongue is wise, of the wise, the tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools just spouts folly. We don't want to be foolish talkers. Be wise. So we want to learn to do that and help our disciples identify some principles for good communication. We got ten minutes left. Yeah, we'll, we'll just talk about these real quick. First of all, listening. Good communication starts with listening. Our mothers always told us, you have two ears and one mouth. Use those more. Use your ears more. Well, the scriptures say, be slow to speak and quick to listen. All right? Listening skills are a learned skill. Let me say that again. Listening skills are a learned skill. We do a lot of hearing but oftentimes we're not listening. Listening is a learned skill. It, is, it takes attention. It takes you being intent on what someone is saying. We hear a lot of things. When I was speaking before, we heard the baby cry. We weren't listening to the baby cry until I made remarks about the baby, but we were hearing it. Listening means I'm, I'm intent on what's being said. I'm, I'm I'm using my energy. I'm, I'm using my faculties. Learned skill. And our young disciples in the home need to understand the importance of listening. Particularly to your voice. They need to learn how and when to listen. It's an active process. Listening is an active process. So we're not to, when the Bible says we're to be quick to hear and slow to speak, that means in, in one sense, we're not to be answering before we've heard a matter, before we hear something. Right? Oftentimes we're not doing that. We're in some kind of discussion with our spouse or somebody else, and, and we have already got our second response made before their words are out of their mouth. We've said something, and they're responding back, and we're, we're just waiting. We're just waiting until they hit the period mark in their sentence, and then we're going to say what we're going to say. We're not listening. We're not, even, we're not even concerned, really. We're just concerned with getting our word out. Because that's all that matters to us. But we're to be quicker to hear than we are to speak. We need to allow others to finish. Then we need to process what's being said. We're all guilty of this. We're all guilty of this. I'm, I'm guilty of it. Right? We interrupt. Kids come up to their mom and dad. I see it all the time. Kids come up to their mom and dad. Their mom and dad are in a discussion with somebody else, and they're just interrupting. They just interrupt them. Well, that's not listening. That's not practicing listening. That's not practicing skills of listening. They need to learn how to interrupt properly. If, if it's an emergency, there might be a valid reason for that, but most of the time it's not an emergency. It's just what they want. And it shows disrespect. It shows a lack of self-control. 
And so we need to teach that and model that for them because it respects others and it's patient towards others, which are virtues of Christian attitudes. So you might want to teach them some kind of appropriate activity for them to be able to to interrupt you properly. Our kids, we used to tell them, when you come up to us, if we're talking, you put your hand on us, on our leg or whatever, and we'll know you're there and we'll get to you when when it's appropriate. But you're not just going to come and go, dad, 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 dad. This, that's not going to happen. And so they learned that. They learned that. And then, of course, not only listening, but speaking. That's the other part of communication, speaking. So we need to teach them, like we said, edifying. How to, how to talk to others with edifying discussion. So that means they need to be willing to engage in a conversation. Not just sit there and go, oh, well, I'm not going to say anything. They need to be taught to engage, to contribute, to answer when they're spoken to. When an adult says hello to them, they're to say hello back, answer. Be polite. We're not asking them to have adult conversation, but we are saying that they are to learn to contribute when appropriate. And to speak the right amount of talking. Some of us speak too little and some of us speak too much. Right? We know who we are. We don't want to overpower a conversation. We want to give appropriate input. So teach them these things. So what they say and how they say it is an indication of what's going on in their heart. Just know that as a parent. What they say, how they say it, is an indication of what's happening inside of their heart. And so depending on their age, depending on the age of those in our home, a wise parent has to go beyond just saying, don't say that. That might be appropriate at a certain age, but we ought to be asking questions. So what are you thinking when you're saying that? What's going on in your heart when you're saying that? Because here's what I'm hearing. What What are you wanting when you speak like that? My wife and I were watching our one-year-old grandson yesterday, and and, uh, he doesn't have any words, but he has communication. And so even when he's asking for something, he's going, ah, you know, in his little ways, and we're saying, say please. He can't formulate that word, but he doesn't have to scream. Trying to teach him that you communicate appropriately. But the, this, it's not just revolving around you. We'll, we'll get what you need, but you can ask in an appropriate fashion. And over time, that begins to resonate. It doesn't take long. So we want them to speak appropriately with your guidance, how to say things. We don't want them to speak foolishly and have foolish tendencies. The Scripture is clear about the hard issues of what brings out foolish speech. Lying is foolish speech. So deal with that strongly. Kill it. Right? God hates liars, the Bible says. Sharp words, things like that. Prideful boasting about themselves. 
tattling on others for the sake of your own gain. You know, I'm not talking about coming and reporting some dangerous activity that might be happening. That's that's appropriate. But just for the sake of your own gain, that's that's not right. Getting involved in issues that aren't your issue, meddling. Gossip, grumbling, whining. By the way, whining in the home, I said earlier, my wife and I didn't allow whining in the home. Why? Because it's grumbling and complaining. That's all it is. It's just outward grumbling and complaining. The Bible says we're not to do that. So don't allow that. Arguing. Sometimes we, uh, we allow our children to negotiate with us, and what they're really doing is just arguing. They're trying to negotiate the thing. They're not really submitting to the authority placed over them. They're negotiating the issues, and and what they're doing is arguing. That's foolish talk, the Bible says. Proverbs 20, verse 3, clearly says we're not to do that. Just read that verse. Proverbs 20, verse 3. keep away from strife keeping away from strife is an honor for a man but any fool will quarrel it's the idea arguing arguing and I always I used to go to James 4 quite a bit in our home because our home had its times of quarreling, fighting, infighting, things like that. And I used to ask my kids the question, well, what's causing the quarrel? What's causing the fight? And inevitably, we, we do what we do in a simple human heart, right? We point the other person. They're the problem. So I just opened the Bible and turned to James 4. Here's what God says. Here's how God defines quarrels. Here's how God defines every quarrel. You want to know what causes every quarrel? Here it is. What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? James 4.1. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You want to know what the cause of the fight is? You. That's what God says. It's not the other person. It's not what they did to you. It's not any circumstance you're in or anything. It's just you. You're the problem. You lost and you don't have it, so you commit murder. You're envious and you can't obtain it, so you fight and you quarrel. There you go. That's a pretty simple diagnosis for all the problems. Why do people have interpersonal problems together? Because somebody wants something, they're not getting it. So they fight. Period. You don't want to have your kids doing that. You don't want to have them doing that. So you have to consider the influence you have in every area of your life, speech, and how that affects what that has upon them. What you say is a powerful instrument. 
James says the tongue is a, is a flame. It's a spark. Spark that strikes where the, and it starts a whole forest on fire. That's the issue. Pretty vivid imagery. Well, self-control will solve that problem. It'll solve that problem. So when they do wrong, oppose them. Stand against them. Righteously, gently, continuously, lovingly. Stand against them and then live an example before them. And then pray. Pray that God would save them. Well, we've gone over time. I've had too many words. <laughs> Any questions? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the attentiveness of these folks. Thank you for their willingness to hear these things and to begin to put them into practice. Thank you that we are able through Jesus Christ and by your Holy Spirit empowered and gifted to be able to do what you ask us to do. Help us to do that willingly. Lord, we know we sin against you. We know that we're not faithful much of the time, but we're thankful for your grace and your mercy, your continued forgiveness through Christ. Help us to show that, to exemplify that before our kids. Help them to learn and to be convicted about their own sin that they might turn to you. We'll thank you in the end for whatever the results are, knowing that you're a gracious God out for your own glory and our good, and so we can thank you in all things. So bless our time now this morning as we come to our time of worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.